First Corinthians chapter three, as you're turning there, you know, uh, one thing I want to talk about, Doug mentioned uh, life groups. We have two, basically two things we do at Waukee Community Church to develop biblical community. One of those is life groups and one of those is life transformation groups. We'll be talking a little bit about more what those two things are over the next few weeks, um, but we're just kind of getting you excited about it because we're excited about this next phase of our ministry together at Waukee Community Church. The last thing I want to say before we get going here is there, my brother lives in Orlando, so we're, uh, they're hunkered down, weather in this uh, hurricane as it goes by Tampa uh, tonight. And, uh, but with what happened in Hurricane Harvey, uh, one of the, you have lots of opportunities to give money. I, I know this. But if you, sometimes you think, if I give my money, is it really going to go to something important? And one of the things that we get to do as an evangelical free church is participate with uh, over 1,500 churches across this country. Fifteen of those churches are in Houston. And so we have an opportunity to partner with like-minded believers in Christ who are trying to bless the, the, the community of Houston. And so if you go to efca.org and you want to give money to the, the evangelical free church, relief fund, you know you're going to be helping fellow believers in Christ Jesus who are trying to assemble their lives and put it all back together. This fund will also work, I know, towards um, Hurricane Irma in Florida. And so they're trying to raise a million dollars to invest in that community. And it's just a great way to do it. I, I hope that we'll have an opportunity to send a few people down to Houston uh, in the coming months to begin to help just l- lend a hand with putting that community back together and working in those churches. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but uh, I'm praying towards that end. All right, let me say a word of prayer before we begin today. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who is active and living in our minds and in our hearts, Spirit, we invite you to fill our minds with the truth of your word and that you would transform us, make us more effective ambassadors of Christ. So change us today by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a, we live in a, con- a country that's absorbed by corporate culture, especially here in Des Moines. So many of you work for corporations of one sort or another. And one of the things that corporations have created over the years is divisions of the company. Divisions to specialize in certain aspects of the company. Of course, the problem is in creating divisions of a company is sometimes people in those divisions care so much about their division that they lose sight of the overall objective of the company, right? An example would be accounting. You know, accounting might be like really into making sure all the numbers just match up perfectly. And, uh, and in loyalty to the division of accounting, they create a mountain of paperwork for the rest of the, the company so that they, can't, they don't even have time to get their jobs done. One division losing sight of the whole thing. Or another example would be Sony. Uh, you know, they pretty much invented the VCR, uh, you know, and people in that division of Sony spent a lot of years working and developing the VCR and they worked hard, but maybe they lost, lost sight of the goal that Nobody wanted VCRs anymore. You know, sometimes we get so focused on one division. Pride gets involved. No one wants to admit when something isn't going right. Pride and fear create distance. Divisions become adversarial. So divisions in a company actually divide people. And I wonder today if the church isn't something like that. 
I, I think we can look around fairly and say the church in our country and around the world is somewhat fractured. Large, large denominations make the news about divisions over controversial issues. Social media is filled with various authors and famous Christians arguing about certain things. But even let's look at the local church for a second. If you just look at the local church, the average local church, what you see there in the local church is that people are divided. They say, I want a church that meets my needs rather than I want to be a church where I want to be part of a church where I can meet the needs of someone else. Uh, Loyalty to the people of God seems like a thing of the past. Pastors, local pastors are afraid to work together because we've swapped people so often that you never know if you work with another local pastor whether or not he's going to take your sheep. There is a sense in which we're divided. We're filled with consumers that look at church leaders as those who provide a service. We're filled with church leaders who seem to care very little of the people that they're called to shepherd. Pride is running everywhere. And if ever in the history of the world we can say this, we can say it now, is more than ever the church needs to come together. We just need to. Locally, in our country, globally, the church needs to come together. There are a few moments in my my life that I remember distinctly our country coming together. You remember certain times, in, in, as you think about through your life and, and your history, uh, of times where our country came together. The, fir- the earliest one for me would be when the Challenger exploded in 1986. You know, I was a teenager, and I was just old enough to, to grasp that this was really bad. And listening to President Reagan's incredibly crafted speech, the country came together around this tragedy. Of course, for, one, for many of you, you remember 9-11. And that moment when the the planes crashed into the buildings and suddenly for for a few moments, we as Americans were all family. We were all Americans. We grabbed each other arm in arm to overcome whatever obstacle was in front of us. Battling arm in arm, it drew us together. We forgot, we fought together to support one another. Friends, the best way, as we're going to learn from our passage today, The best way to bring healing to a divided divided church is to fight together for the kingdom of the new reality. The best way to heal the divisions in a church is to fight together for the kingdom of the new reality. You see, church isn't easy. It's not easy. Doing church together takes people who are willing to stand arm in arm and fight together. It's not easy. We're in this series in 1 Corinthians called Life in a New Reality. Today we're going to talk about fighting together as the church. As believers in Jesus Christ, you know, we've been adopted into this family of God. I've been saying this for five weeks now, reminding you. That because of our adoption as children of God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that his death covers over your sins, that he rose from the grave. He ushered us into a new reality. You are part of that new reality. Yet we look around everywhere and see the old reality. How do we live as people of the new reality in the midst of the old reality everywhere we look? It's really the kingdom of God 
were to permeate the darkness of this world and bring hope. And the Corinthians recognized that this was hard. They still function day to day in an old reality. How do we live in the new reality while you're surrounded by the old? So last week, we focused on the end of chapter 2, and we, and we talked significantly here in chapter 2 about our minds, that we have the mind of Christ. We talked about the transformative power of the mind of Christ. And Paul reminds them, you have the mind of Christ, he says. Why aren't you using the mind of Christ? Kind of like a parent saying to his teenage child, did you just turn your brain off? Like, where did your brain go? That's sort of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Turn your brains on. You have the mind of Christ. Use it. Act like you live in the new reality. Do this by fighting together for the kingdom of God. So today what I want to talk about is that to heal a divided church, we have to fight together. And I want to talk about four aspects of our fighting together. Four aspects from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As, and I, as I try to convince you today of the power of fighting together. And so first of all, you need to know, Paul tells us that if you're going to fight together, you need to fight together for the right things. Fight together for the right things. Quit fighting about the wrong things. After reminding them of the beauty of their access to this new reality through the mind of Christ, Paul says, I want to talk to you about this new reality, but you're acting like you're stuck in the old reality. Now remember, Paul started this church in Corinth. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. This was longer than Paul spent in just about any church that he walked into and planted. He planted the church and he spent a year and a half there. And then as soon as Paul left, about a year and a half, a guy named Apollos, someone Paul respected, someone whose Paul's protégés had taught in the faith, brought him up in the faith, a really smart guy. He came to Corinth after Paul left. And these Corinthians that Paul is learning after he left, they sort of prided themselves on who was their father in the faith. They had intellectual camps all over their society and they were trying to convince each other, hey, choose the right camp. Be part of my Christian camp. Be part of the Apollos camp. Be part of the Paul camp. Be part of the Peter camp. Be part of the Jesus camp. They had all these camps, their allegiances. They had an arrogance of wisdom to them. They fought with each other over allegiance to these individuals. So it's in the context of this fighting amongst themselves that Paul says this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. In other words, I couldn't address you as people of the new reality. I got to talk to you as if you were people of the old reality. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not, are they not mere men? Paul says you're fighting over the wrong things. You're worldly. Fight together for the right things. Don't fight over the wrong things. You see these Corinthian Christians just imported their cultural practice right into the church. Their practice, 
through that, they thought as if they were still people of the old reality. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. You're thinking about things all wrong. In Greek culture, they prided themselves on following certain philosophical camps. I'm, a, I'm of a certain teacher. I'm of a certain person. The Corinthians just pulled that cultural practice right into the church. And Paul says, stop it. You are letting this culture influence you rather than you influencing this culture. Stop it. Where are the philosophies of our culture that are influencing us today? Just think for a minute. Sometimes we're so influenced by culture that we don't even know we're being influenced by culture. What are the practices in our culture that influence you today that are sucking you into the old reality when you are a child of the new reality? Two things come to mind to me, to me that are pervasive and everywhere in our culture. First is the cultural concept of individualism. The highest goal we place in our culture is in my individual freedom. As an individual, I look out for me. For the vast history of the human race, people didn't think like this. They thought in terms of we, that I'm part of something, not in terms of me. So we ask the question, what's best for me? Not what's best for the community. Individualism has eked into our lives. We don't even know it. We think like individuals. The other aspect of our culture is consumerism. Everything in our culture is a transaction. Every relationship you have is seen in terms of a transaction. What can I benefit out of this relationship? So whether you go to the Chinese food store and your relationship with the guy behind the counter is that you give him money and he gives you Chinese food. Yum. It's a transaction. We think about it in terms of relationships with people. If I invest myself in this guy, what will I get out of it? Consumerism comes to everything. In the church, especially the church growth movement of the 1990s, did Christianity an incredible disservice and created harm. Because what? We created churches that were designed to meet your every need. Whatever need you have, we will meet it at our church. So come here. Well, what? that's great, except what happens when you stop meeting that person's need? Well, then I have every right to go to a different church where for a while they will meet my needs. We just, we just caved in to the consumerism of our culture. You and I are influenced like this in ways that we don't even realize. And it explains why many Christians break fellowship with their church. Individualism. Somebody did not behave the way I wanted them to. Consumerism. My needs didn't get met. We don't even really fight anymore, to be honest. We just go, yeah, whatever. I'll go somewhere else that meets my needs. Paul says, identify the philosophies of the old reality that have permeated your thinking. Root them out. Call them what they are. Selfish thinking. Quit dividing into camps, he says to the Corinthians. You're fighting the wrong battles. If you're not willing to identify where our culture has influenced your thinking in a negative way, You are, Paul says, a spiritual infant. Most people in this room would probably be insulted if I called you a spiritual infant. If you are unwilling 
to identify where culture has rooted and transformed your thinking. You're an infant. It's not nice. I have loved every infant we've had. We've had six of them. I've loved every one of them. I loved every infant. But I was in no way excited about a prospect of them just remaining an infant for the rest of our life, right? Like, I didn't want a 19-year-old infant. The whole goal is to get your kids out, to raise them up, to make them mature, to invest in them. We don't need diapers for that many years. How many Christians are so influenced by our culture that Paul would say, you've been a believer for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you're still wearing diapers. Quit it. Don't fight for the old philosophies of individualism and and consumerism. Rather, labor for the kingdom of God, this new reality. Do it together. It's what matters. The best way to bring healing to a divided church is to fight together for the kingdom of the new reality. Not to fight for the wrong things, but to fight for the right things. And that means choosing the right things, not choosing individualism and consumerism. Rather, choosing the church. And this brings us into our second piece today. Not only do we fight together for the right things, we fight together as equals. We should know our place in the kingdom battle that we wage. As we fight to be agents of the kingdom, we cannot, we cannot get a big head. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. In talking about this division between Apollos and Peter and Paul, and there's probably other camps here too that they were divided into. He says this, after all, what is Apollos? What's Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. As I learn about World War II, I'm no history expert, but as I've learned a little bit more about World War II, one of the things that strikes me is the number of young officers that were put in charge of a unit. These young officers, sometimes these young officers would come into a unit and they would have an enlisted man, a sergeant, someone who was seasoned and a veteran, and you're putting this young 22-year-old in charge. And what I've learned is that The young officer, sometimes his title went to his head. And instead of of pulling from the wisdom of the seasoned soldiers around him, he ignored them and did his own thing. His pride got involved. The young officer whose title went to his head missed the point. The point is, we're all charging this together. We're all fighting this together. We're like equals. Paul uses an illustration here to highlight this idea. Look at the the rest of this little section here, starting in verse 6. He comes up with this illustration of this plant. He says, I planted the seed, speaking of the gospel, in their lives. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Think about what he's saying here. What farmer can take credit for the growth of his crop? 
I mean, true, he plants it in the ground. He cultivates the the soil. He puts the seeds there. He fertilizes it. He makes sure it gets the proper amount of irrigation if he's irrigating. He does all this stuff. But what farmer goes, I made that grow. I did that. I made that seed turn into a corn plant. No farmer can say that. He can only take credit for creating an environment. He did not make the seed grow. And as the church, God is the one who causes you and I to grow. Not any one of us leaders. We each have our job, but the work is the Lord's. And so every leader in your life, every fellow Christian, while we might have different levels of leadership in the church or you know, some, some people in, in, in the larger church, we might have different levels of importance. Even if within our own denomination, the ESCA, we have a president, we have a district superintendent, and then just lowly me, right? Even in the scope of all this, Paul says, what's the difference? It's like, it's like this. The difference between leaders is like the difference between the highest point on earth and the lowest point on earth. If you think about Mount Everest, 29,000 feet, the highest place on earth, I believe. Compare that to the Mariana Trench, which is 36,000 feet deep in the ocean. If you were to lop off Mount Everest and put it into the Mariana Trench, you'd still have over a mile of water. I mean, it's really deep. The difference between the highest place on the earth and the lowest place on earth is staggering. If you were to sort of put that and just try to stare at the depths of it, it would seem insurmountably different. Until you gain a little perspective. Because once you zoom out and get the whole planet in perspective, it doesn't seem a big deal. Once you zoom out and get the whole solar system in perspective, eh, it doesn't seem like the big deal. Once you get zoom out and get the whole galaxy in perspective... It doesn't feel like that big of a difference. And that is what Paul is saying to them. We all have different roles. We have different jobs. But compared to God, our differences are like, like this. They're, they're tiny. What, what this does for us in the church is it eliminates pride. When we remember that we're all children of God, our differences in importance are insignificant compared to the majesty of God. Our pride goes away when we all remember that we're all children of God. Our differences in importance are insignificant compared to the majesty of God. And what this does for us is this eliminates the concept of professional Christian workers. So many of us subconsciously have said, Influenced by consumerism is we pay our pastors, we pay our professors, we pay our theologians, we pay our authors to do the thinking, to do the work of the ministry. And we put them in a separate category. But Paul says, we're all, we're all in this together. Embrace the fight. You have a kingdom, of, you have a kingdom job. One of my favorite quotes that Je- my friend Jeff Johannesson says all the time is, everybody's job is nobody's job. I, I, I like that quote because it's true. Sometimes we think, well, everybody is supposed to do this work. We're all equals. And then it becomes nobody's job. Friends, we see ourselves as equals because we see ourselves as arm in arm fighting for the work of the kingdom of God. Everybody's got to do it. We're equals. Compared to God. 
The third thing I want you to know today, not only do we fight together for the right things and fight together as equals, but we fight together for something of worth. This is valuable. Sometimes we fight over things that are ultimately insignificant, right? We should fight for something that's valuable. I mean, we laugh and uh, we think about, uh, you know, dividing churches and fighting over the, the, the color of the carpet or whether the concrete got stained or not, or, you know. I mean, the, the examples of churches dividing over ridiculous things like this are easy to point out. But the truth is, we all have influences in our life that keep us fighting for something that really isn't all that valuable. Paul is going to switch metaphors now. So he's given us this metaphor of a plant. Now he's going to switch to a construction metaphor. He's going to give us a metaphor of a building, and he's going to remind us that when we fight together, we should fight together for something that's valuable. Paul is going to switch this. Now, in verse 9, it's kind of interesting. You guys all know that the the little markings, the little paragraph divisions in your Bible are um, something that translators or people have put in. They weren't originally there. And we find that falls into play here in verse 9. Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. That's, he's summarizing what he's just said when he talked about the plant illustration. And now he says, you are God's building by the grace God has given me. I laid a foundation. This last part of verse 9 flows right into what we want to talk about in this next point. To fight for something of value. Literally, you are God's building. I laid your foundation, Paul says. To bring them together, Paul now points to the value of the work that God's servants do together. Look at the rest. Look at this section, verse 10 to 15. Read it with me. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. He's talking about Apollos. But each one of you should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that, the one that's already laid which is Jesus Christ. So Paul's basically saying and clarifying himself here, saying, okay, I laid the foundation, but that foundation is Christ. Let's make no mistake about it. The foundation of the church is Christ. If any man builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This this passage here is really important because it reminds us that Jesus is the foundation. You, church, are the building on Christ. So what you do matters. Let's see if what we build together is worthwhile. Paul uses the metaphor of sending a building through a fire. We're reminded of this right now with a hurricane going on, aren't we? Buildings were built, supposedly in Florida, to be hurricane-proof. Except now they're saying, well, hurricane up to, up to a certain point, you know. We don't know if it's going to survive a hurricane five, but, or a level five, but we could have got them through a level four. But they were built with building codes in mind. Paul is saying that same thing. What what are we building? Are we building things for our pride, for our ego, for our preferences? Because those are wood and hay and straw. And when they're put to the test, those things are going to burn up. 
But when we build for the kingdom of God, we're building for things that truly matter and we're laying with precious stones, gold, metal, things that when put to the test will survive. The church is valuable. Paul uses this example here um, for a reason. He uses this idea of the church should be built of precious stones because the church has intrinsic value. You see, the thing is, are you working to build up your church or yourself? See, your motives will be tested. Are your motives to build yourself or to edify the church? You see, the thing is, we use all kinds of excuses in our life to justify building up ourselves rather than building up the church. We all do it, myself included. One of the excuses we use all the time to justify our building up ourselves is we do all kinds of things in the names of our children. It has rightfully been said that the greatest idolatry in the American culture is the idolatry of children. All you have to do is go to a soccer field and you will see people worshiping their children instead of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I got six of them and I love them to death. I I pour my life into these kids and, and, and my kids are everything to me. But are they worth more than the church? Oh man. All right. Now I'm like, I'm just going to make you all mad, but uh, think about it. There's something more important than your own children. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. You don't hear people say that. But Paul says it right here. He says it because he says the church is the temple. He's going to say it. He says the church is the temple. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that you... Yourselves, the church, are the temple and that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. The church, the people, you all are the temple of God. There have been a few examples over the years where like just ministry gets hard. And I remember people who said, Dave, why do you put up with this? Like, why did you go sell insurance or something, right? Why do you put up with this stuff? And my answer is I'm called to this. But the more I thought about it, I realized I do this because the church is the bride of Christ, the temple of God. This is important. It's hard, but it's worth it. You know how the Jews thought about their physical temple? In the New Testament, we realize that the physical temple is replaced with the the people of the church. God doesn't live in the temple anymore. He lives in those believers. He lives in the church, the people. Think about how the Jews regarded the temple of the Old Testament. All we got to do is look to the the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. History records for us the story of the Maccabees. When the Greeks came in to Israel, when they came into the second land, the second temple, excuse me, the rebuilt temple, and they came into this area, one of the Greek rulers, one of uh, a descendant of the generals of, of Alexander the Great, decided that this whole Jewish religion thing needed to be dealt with. And so he brought a statue of Zeus into the temple, and he set it up, 
And then he took a pig and he slaughtered it on the, on the altar. Now, a pig would be the most offensive thing that you could possibly do for a Jew. And to have a false god, an idol, a clear violation of the Ten Commandments in the temple of God, they weren't going to put up with this. And a guy by the name of Maccabees, the Maccabees that came, he, he and his five sons said, no more. And they rallied this ragtag gang of, of Jews to go and fight to take back and repurify the temple of God. And they did it with their blood and their life. That's how important the temple was to them. And what Paul is saying is here, you all are that temple. Look at the person next to you right now. Just do it. Look at the person next to you. Gaze into their eyes awkwardly. <laughs> What's funny is, <laughs> anyway, you guys are hilarious. All right, that's the temple. You're looking at a temple. How you treat that person matters. We gossip about people. We ignore people. We slander people. We attack people. That's the temple. Another illustration that the New Testament uses for the church is the bride of Christ. So not only is the person next to you the temple of God, they're a bride. I'm an ugly bride. I get it. But still, you know, they're the bride of Christ. I once read this quote. I thought it was fantastic. The church is the bride of Christ. Be wary of anyone who speaks ill of her. Whew. Well, that's convicting. You know, there are times over the past 22 years where someone has said something hurtful to my wife. It happens, right? We're all in relationships. It happens. Someone says something to me that's hurtful. I internalize it. I bury it down deep. I have all kinds of horrible ways to deal with it, right? But at the end of the day, okay, it's me. But if someone says something horrible about my wife, oh, like I'd come, I want to come unglued. She's my wife. She's my bride. How do you think Jesus feels? That, when you seek yourself and put yourself over the bride of Christ, how do you think he thinks of that? Paul says, if you're going to fight for something in this world, fight together for something that is really valuable. And the church, we all together, the people, we're valuable. Fight for the church. If you're going to fight for something in this world, fight for something important. Something more important than politics, more important than economics, more important than school board elections, more important than your HOA, more important than your job. Fight for something of worth. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus fought for the church. And that's how valuable we are to him. Will you fight for something that truly matters? Will you fight for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Fight together for something of value, the church. The fourth thing, not only do we fight together for something of worth, the last thing I want to talk about today, just briefly, is we fight together as fools. We fight together as fools. Let's be fools together. Let's finish out the passage here. Verse 18. Don't deceive yourself. If anyone thinks he is wise by the standards of the age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Now, remember, in the context, this was very Corinthian of them. 
to walk around touting their wisdom, their wisdom of their philosophical camp, you know, telling everyone how great they are. This was very Corinthian in the culture. Is anyone, you think you're wise? He's like, I, I become a fool. Uh, the NIV puts it in quotes. I think that's good. Paul's sort of tongue-in-cheek in this a little bit. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight, as it's written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. There is a foolishness to the gospel. I've reminded you of this every week. The simple gospel message. It's so simple, it's foolish. (laughs) You know, the idea that we're broken, but that God was born in Jesus to fix our brokenness. He bridged the gap and brought a beautiful victory over death through the resurrection. The simple message of this seems ridiculous. Like we discussed, there's a foolishness to this whole idea that God Almighty would come to us. But God confronts the wisdom of this world and the foolishness of the cross. He makes the wisdom of the world look like foolishness. So Paul's question is, do you really want to put your trust in mere men? Do you really want to find your identity in earthly leaders? When you embrace Christ, who is seen as foolishness by the world, you gain access to a ton. And he just starts listing it all. As fools in Christ, we're heirs of all things. So quit fighting for concepts or people that are less valuable than the gospel. It's all yours in Christ. It's so not important. Fight together as a fool for something of worth. So as Christians, I would ask you today, if you do an honest evaluation of your life, are you fighting for the wrong things? Are you fighting for, maybe even unintentionally, are you fighting for the wrong things? Are you fighting for the wrong team? Uh, I looked up on YouTube uh, recently this this concept of uh, people in sports that that accidentally played for the wrong team. Uh, So, like, there was this uh, women's basketball game between Russia and Spain. Russia somehow inbounded the ball, and all five women went the wrong way on the court and shot a three-point shot in the wrong basket. They all got massively confused together. And then they were looking, the other team was like, thank you, Uh, you know. (laughs) And they went, oh, I just fought for the wrong team. Uh, (laughs) uh, North Dakota State last February, there is a great clip on YouTube. This guy from North Dakota State, they're playing Denver, and Denver uh, shoots the ball, and the rebound goes towards the sideline. And this guy from North Dakota State goes to dive for the ball, and he flips it like this, trying to get it up in the air to a teammate and he flips it up and it goes right in the basket for three points for the other team. And it was like, they all were like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Fought for the wrong team. But the most famous as a bears fan, this brings me much joy. Jim Marshall of the Minnesota Vikings 50 years ago or 50 years ago, the Jim Marshall wrong way run. 
He, uh, th- there was a fumble on the, as a defender. He picked up the ball and he starts running to the end zone. But the only problem is he's running to the wrong end zone and the coaches are yelling and everyone's, the fans are yelling, you're going the wrong way. He has no idea. He goes in the end zone. He flips the ball out of the end zone and it results in, in a safety two points for the 49ers. And he just goes back and you, you can see, like he just talks about kind of deer in the headlights. Like, what happened? There are so many times when you and I do things like that. We sort of forget whose team we're on. Maybe we don't even realize it. The minute you forget that the church is the bride of Christ, the minute you place yourself above the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, the minute you knowingly embrace the consumerism or individualism of this world, that's the minute we stop fighting together and we start fighting for the enemy. If the kingdom of God, as we say, is really invading this world and we are his agents in this, then we, the church, must fight together. We have to. So I would say, humbly, may the Lord build his kingdom through us. May the spirit convict us of our selfishness. May we fight together. For the kingdom of God. Our worship team is going to come up now. And we are going to sing that song. That we would pray that God would through us. Together build his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We just humbly ask. We humbly ask. That you would convict us where necessary where we have sat on the sidelines in selfishness and consumerism, would you change us? Would you get us in the battle? Would you help us to fight arm in arm with our brothers and sisters who are the temple, who are worth it, who are the bride of Christ? Would you change us? Would you build your kingdom in us together as we fight together for the kingdom of God? In Jesus' name, amen.